This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. Per usual, I do hope that everyone listening is doing fantastic. But before we get into anything, Tim, I don't want to bury the lead here. How are you today, sir? <laughs> I am doing great. Please don't call me sir. Jeez. I am really excited to uh, speak with our friend and guest today, Sarah Kayleen of Sarah Kayleen Investigations. You can find out what she's up to at KayleenInvestigations.com. And Lance, she's got a new podcast. It's called Why Can't We Talk About Amanda's Mom? It is about the horrific murder of Renee Bergeron in Alabama in 1993. And this new podcast is fantastic. It really is. And Sarah, like you said, is a friend of ours. She's also an investigator. And she's producing this podcast along with ID. And they're doing such a great job. It really plays out. It feels like in real time. And you get in this conversation with Sarah, a really unique peek behind the curtain. Like you said, this involves the brutal murder of a young woman in 1993, but it is so horrific. And I really don't know exactly how Sarah is able to compartmentalize. Maybe it's just the 25 plus years she's had in law enforcement, but she is so good at investigating and separating her emotions from the investigation. And you hear it throughout the episodes that are live now. Yeah, you do. And you will hear it in this conversation as well, because we get pretty dark and graphic in this conversation. So that is a trigger warning to our listeners. This is probably one of the more disturbing conversations that we've had recently. So just want to give you a fair warning there. But you know what you do not need a trigger warning for, Tim? What? Our subscription service. That's right. Our subscription service, Crawlspace Premium, is available now on Apple Podcasts. You can click right there on your app and subscribe. You will get early releases, ad-free episodes, and our wonderful weekly bonus show that people talk about all the time because it's fiery, it's interesting, and we're more casual than we are on the public feed, Lance. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and and sign up for the same product there. You know you're right. I was out walking the dog the other day and someone drove by and they yelled out the window, love your subscription show. I was blown away. But Tim, I have yet to have people stop me in public to talk about our social media because I think they're confused as to where to locate us on social media. Can you give me a hand? Oh, well, that is crazy. Listeners can find us at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod on social media. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here and then we'll be right back with Sarah Kayleen. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome back to the podcast. Sarah Kayleen, how are you today? I am well. How are you guys? 
doing fantastic. Uh, you are well and you are busy and we're going to get into what has made you so busy. The phenomenal show that is out currently, but let's uh, let's do a little catch up. What has Sarah been up to outside of the podcast world? Outside of the podcast world, it has largely been casework. So the case that the podcast that we'll talk about here, that case has been taking up the bulk of my life for, it'll actually be four years next week. But that being said, I also work on a couple of other cold case homicides for that same agency down in Alabama, the Mobile County Sheriff's Office. I've also been retained as an investigator on another case, a relatively high profile case, but it's one that unfortunately I can't discuss publicly yet. That will all kind of come to light at some point, I suspect. But that one has also been taking up a lot of time over the last six months or so. You know, otherwise just kind of trying when I'm not working to enjoy life. I moved into a new home in the fall. My daughter's a senior in high school. And so just kind of trying to navigate her to the finish line. Dear God, let us make it to the finish line. Just kind of living life and trying to not be too absorbed in murder, but just the right amount of absorbed in murder. Yeah, it's tough not to be absorbed in murder when you're a true crime podcaster. And for you, who's uh, someone with a background in law enforcement, I imagine it's even harder to not be fully immersed. Yeah, I do the media stuff. I do the podcast stuff. And I also do a series of speaking events around the country. But my everyday job, what I consider, you know, my work is homicide investigator, cold case homicide investigator. And so that is the other stuff I'm kind of trying to squeeze in around the edges of actually working cases. How do you get contacted by people? You said that you were working on a high profile case that you can't talk about, but how does someone like you take on work like that? It started primarily just as kind of consultancy here and there. A number of years ago, that was sort of how, uh, you know, what led to the Hell in the Heartland project was being reached out to by an author about possibly looking at that one. And then from there, you know, I've been contacted by a couple of people, but in all honesty, it was through the course of that project that I became acquainted with the head of major crimes down at Mobile County. And since then, I've actually become deputized. I'm actually a part of the major crimes unit there. So, you know, there's no shortage of cold case homicides from a time when the agency was very different than they are now. They are just a top-notch agency. I love working with them. They're not only buttoned down and doing everything the right way, as far as I'm concerned, but they've got a really fantastic reputation and relationship with their community. You know, I mean, it's all the things that we want law enforcement to be doing. And so I just continue to work on cases with them. To the other stuff, as I'm kind of building up a little bit more of a public profile, people can reach out. I am accepting case consultations and people can reach out through my uh, my website. Either you can actually go to kaleninvestigations.com or just sarahkalen.com. You know, submit a request for information there and then I go from there. Very cool. What does a uh, consultation look like? It depends on the degree of the consultation. I can usually tell right from jump. You know, if somebody tells me, hey, here is this case that happened and here's like one article about it. I can tell you right out of the gate whether or not it's something that I think I might or might not be useful for. Obviously, I had a lot of attention to detail. I'm very well organized. I kind of structure things. I have a very, very kind of regimented system how I start working on a case. But if you have an unsolved hit and run that ended in a fatality, if you have an unsolved gang-related homicide, I'm not necessarily who you want to 
come to. And I would tell people that, you know what I mean? Like I'm not interested in just taking money to work on cases that I don't think I can solve. As I discuss in the podcast, cases where I really shine all have a very specific look to them. I can tell at a glance, I can tell from a couple sentences whether or not this is one that I may be beneficial to. And if I think I can be beneficial, then, you know, the next step in the process is, you know, determining if somebody wants to retain my services. And then from there, giving me access to as many of the case files as they can. I essentially believe in starting from scratch. My feeling is that cases in large part, they're cold because of early missteps. And that's not necessarily a reflection on the detectives. It doesn't necessarily mean poor detective work. It just means if something was missed here or there, or there wasn't something available at the time, a bit of information, I think it's important to go back from the very, very beginning, not just sort of pick up where the case was last left off. And so that's what the, you know, the next big step in the process for me is to essentially kind of reinvestigate the case with everything I can get my hands on. I get all the materials I can possibly get, anything that they have access to, autopsy reports, the original investigators, notebooks, if they're available, stuff like that. And then just start as though I'm walking onto the case brand new day one. This is my last question, I promise, about something that's not related to your new show. When you get all of the information, I'm sure you don't get all of it all at once, but you must get like a big chunk of it all at once. Where do you start with that? How do you not overwhelm yourself with a bunch of stuff coming? Is there something you look at first that makes more sense for you to go to? Oh, it's overwhelming. A close friend of mine who's also my production partner on the podcast, he refers to me as the Marie Kondo of crime. Because what I do is I'll often haul up from my basement a big giant folding table like at a big public event or whatever. And I just pull through and I organize things in terms of what my own personal cataloging system is. So I have a pile for forensics. I have a pile for automobiles. I have a pile for witness statements. I have a pile for police reports. And I go through those. They're all color coded. And then I build a spreadsheet, you know, a new spreadsheet for every single case. And they are color coded to coordinate with the actual physical files. The first year I spent on the Bergeron case was almost entirely data entry in addition to interviewing some family members and stuff because I went through 5,000 pages and entered every single license license plate, every phone number, every name scribbled in a margin or left on a like while you were out call slip. So then as that begins to build now, as I'm reading through notes and reading through statements, if a name, if it's like, oh, well, I heard Jimmy Miller, I feel like that's familiar. I can jump into the spreadsheet and say, oh, Jimmy Miller was referenced in notebook five. And then I can go look at it again. And so then I can start to kind of like get, it's like a Monet up close and then from a distance. And so I can start to get an idea of what the picture looks like. And then once I have an idea of what the picture looks like, then I'm operating largely on, you know, what we refer to in law enforcement as training, education, and experience, and just kind of going on what I think what's probably going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about your new podcast, Why Can't We Talk About Amanda's Mom. It is phenomenal. At the time of this recording, there are four episodes out there. I've listened to them all. I was riveted. It's excellent, great work so far. I can't wait to hear the rest. Please tell us a little bit about this case. Thank you so much. And it means a lot to me coming from you guys. I have a lot of respect for your work. So it feels really good to hear people I respect enjoying it and taking something from it. So the case itself, uh, November 14th, 1993, the remains of a woman who was at the time identified as Maria Martinez were found on a service road running alongside Interstate 10, almost to the Mississippi line in Mobile County, Alabama. So it was outside of Mobile 
Mobile, the city proper, but you know, almost to the Mississippi line. She was found in a very remote area. It's a very rural part of the county. I-10 is right there, but the service road itself at the time was completely dirt. There's only a few homes. She was not really obscured. She was just kind of left in some bushes. So if you were driving on that roadway and you happened to look up there, you would see her. She wasn't buried or anything. And her remains have been very badly mutilated. At the time in 1993, the detectives who were assigned the case immediately began operating under the idea that it was a, quote, drug deal gone bad, which when I was asked to look at the case, obviously, to me, a drug deal gone bad is, you know, you're shot once or twice and put in a dumpster behind Wendy's or, you know, left in your own home or something like that. You are not a sexually mutilated woman left in the bushes naked. Um, That is not a drug deal gone bad. I started operating from the premise that this was a sexual homicide. That is the type of case that I specialize in. You know, going through that original investigation, like I said, from scratch, I start reading the notebooks from the moment the officers, the detectives arrive on scene and start drawing sketches and start taking names of people lurking about watching what the police are doing and just kind of go from there. And I built that spreadsheet that I described. But I think the most important thing that I did that was not done at the time was I immediately reached out to her family. I reached out first to make sure they were comfortable with the investigation proceeding because it can be really traumatic for families, you know, on a case that they've sort of accepted is cold to dive back in. And so I wanted to, you know, make sure that I wasn't going to be ripping anyone's life apart. And they were very enthusiastic about it. They had apparently attempted a number of times over the years to get county to reopen the investigation, but it was under different administrations. It was not the same administration that was in charge when I came onto the case. And this administration was very, very supportive of going at it full bore. The leadership there told major crimes, like this nerdy lady is going to come in and work on this case and you guys are going to help in any way she needs. And I just developed a fantastic working relationship with them. And so since then, it's almost been the stuff of movies. It's been a roller coaster whodunit. But I think in getting to know her It's not just a matter of respect. That is obviously incredibly important and every victim deserves that. But you're also operating off bad information if you're just guessing. So if your thought is, well, it's a drug deal because we know she, you know, got arrested for drugs once a few years ago, you're not going to talk to any of the right people. You're not going to find any of the right witnesses. Chances are any witness or anybody who has knowledge on a case like that is not going to come knocking on your door. They have reason to be scared just like anybody else. So unless you try and find out who this person was and what their day actually looked like, not what you suppose it might have looked like, you're not going to get any real information. And that's where I think we've been able to make tremendous strides in this case in a relatively short period of time as compared to the original investigators. Speaking of like the time it takes to make progress in a case that's cold like this one, how does that work with producing a podcast based on it? You know, for something like this, you know, when I took over the case, like I said, almost the whole first year I was doing phone calls and stuff, but I was building this catalog and I was building myself that Monet from a distance to see what it looked like. And I didn't really start working regularly with the detectives on the ground until after I had kind of assembled around four what I felt were really solid theories of the case that needed to be pursued and at a minimum eliminated. 
And so it was once we had that, that I got on the ground with them. Now, time is weird. I live in Philadelphia. Mobile is a 17 hour drive. And when I have all my files and all my equipment and everything, I am in fact driving that trip for the most part. So, you know, there were times when I'm able to spend three or four weeks in a stretch in Mobile working every single day. And then there are times when I don't get down for a couple months and I'm doing what I can from here, but then, you know, working in bursts. So as far as then looping in a production, the way that that went, it was not a production, really. There was a thought of possibly making it a production from fairly early on. And the sheriff's department agreed to just let me audio record everything in the event that we decided to make it into a documentary. And so we had something like four gigs of audio data when we actually got greenlit on this as a documentary podcast by Discovery ID. I think they decided to buy it in May. We got started in August of just this past year. And we turned in final audio in February. So really the production aspect happened relatively quickly, but it happened quickly because we had, you know, 90% of the material already there. The production team spent about three weeks on the ground, you know, interviewing, doing the sort of sit down interviews with the sheriff's office and with some of the witnesses and family members, but everything else was kind of in the can. And then we just started writing the script, sort of writing a narrative way to tell this story and putting the stuff in. Tell us a little bit about the case and about the victim, Renee. When they realized that they did not have the correct name for the victim, she was identified in the next couple of days as 26-year-old Renee Bergeron from just outside New Orleans. She's from Marrero, Louisiana, kind of a, a suburban parish. She was the youngest of a big Catholic family in New Orleans, a very, very loving, kind of tight family. But essentially, she kind of ran away from home at 15 to be with this 19-year-old boy in Mobile. And they got pregnant and her parents kind of were like, well, I guess, you know, what are we going to do? They signed off on a marriage and she got married and she had this little baby, Amanda Renee. And when Amanda Renee was about six months old, her father, Clay, so her, you know, her mom's husband got brain cancer and ultimately died of an aneurysm very unexpectedly through the course of the treatment for the brain cancer. So now you have a 16-year-old widow and a baby and she really struggled for about another five months. She was like trying to go through cosmetology school. She's trying to do something to kind of provide for this child. And she ultimately turned to her parents and said, will you take her you take the baby so that she has a stable home while I get a degree and get, you know, get kind of sorted. And her family said, absolutely. Like I said, this is a very close, supportive family. All the way through the process, they knew everything about Renee's life. There were not secrets in regards to when she had gone astray. You know, she went through cycles of addiction, like so many other people, and she would be clean for a long stretch, and then she would be using again. You know, it would be oversimplifying it to say that the addiction led to sex work, because I'm not sure that's really actually the case. She did escort work, which she traveled all over the country for. So it's not quite as cut and dried as somebody who needs a fix and is just is operating in sex work because they're, you know, trying to go kind of from one moment to the next, which again, if that had been the case, I would have taken the case every bit as seriously as I do this one. But this is just this particular woman's story. There was a lot to unearth about those connections because the underworld of escort work on a national scale 
is quite different from just, oh, there's a girl with a pimp. You know, then your suspect pool is generally pretty obvious, right? Is it somebody that she had, you know, taken on as a client? Is it somebody who she felt owed them money or was abusive in other ways? This becomes much more complicated because there are a network of really nefarious people, you know, all over the country, some of them involved in Mexican cartels. I kid you not. This 26-year-old girl, her own mother describes as incredibly naive and trusting given the elements that she was moving in. She was operating in a universe, I think she was probably in deeply over her head, you know, so for me to go in there, it was like, okay, what part of that story do we need to be examining when we're looking at something like a brutal sexual homicide? And how do you get into that kind of dark underworld without it influencing your current investigation? I would say very carefully is the answer to that always, um, you know, from the outset. In this particular case, a lot of the people, at least within the region, who were operating, who were absolutely running the show when Renee was operating in those circles, a lot of them have been broken up. They've been busted through a series of federal raids, both DEA raids, FBI raids, you know, some stuff to do with drugs, some stuff to do with human trafficking. And so I consider myself quite lucky with this case that we actually had a ton of court records that we could like follow the trail of like this person who worked in Mobile, but had connections to Houston. Okay, well, now we see Renee was in Houston this many days before she died. And so do we need to interview this person, right? So we were really lucky in that a lot of the rings she was operating in, which were massive organized crime in the 80s and 90s, have since been kind of piecemeal disassembled. And so we've got a lot of the paper trail there. That helps a lot. It gives us the people to look at. And you feel like there are potential killers in that group of people? There are so many killers in that group of people. <laughs> Obviously, they're not all uh, one-on-one involved in this particular murder. But I will say that I hope to actually write a book on this case one day because eight episodes is just not enough to really dive into it. You know, I feel like we've done a really good job of covering this case with the podcast, but there is so much stuff that we have kind of like lifted up the corner of a rug and been like, oh my God, the sheer volume of cockroaches living under this is astounding. Last six months on this, I've been working with a researcher, a forensic researcher named Jennifer Leahy, who has also done a lot of work for Rabia Chaudhry for Undisclosed. And the texts I get from Jen in the middle of the night about like, did you know that this woman who got busted in Gary, Indiana was actually in Renee's address book? And that connects to, and I'm like, oh my God, like it's, it's really insane. So it might be, it might be a whole uh, series of books if we're going to really dive into all the stuff we found around Renee. But in terms of her case, yes, I think we've identified some really important key players from that world. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And I can't resist asking the question now. The standout episode, I think, for both Tim and myself was episode three, The Serial Killer's Highway. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experience with Ann Burgess and how that really comes together as far as like what's out there right now for your episodes? It feels like it's a turning point type episode, like a shift episode. I don't know if that was intentional. I think that it was. Thank you. You know, the thing with that episode, it's really funny. When I was writing the scripts, I was a little worried that 
that episode was kind of too wonky and a little too like in the weeds. And instead, everybody loves it, which makes me really happy. It, it demonstrates what I have kind of long been saying, which is there is an appetite for really intelligent true crime out there. And I'm excited that people have responded this way. So when I first took on the case, well, back it up to when I first went into the Federal Academy and was living in a dorm and didn't have any money or uh, cable. This would have been 1998. And I picked up a copy of Mindhunter, which was relatively uh, new at that point. I think it came out in like 96, maybe. And as I was reading it, you know, Douglas's experience are obviously really fascinating and really compelling. But I kind of noticed this sort of like reading between the lines of like this person, this nurse from Boston seems to have really, you know, had something to say in here. And so I started looking into Dr. Burgess. And from that point forward, she has kind of been the North Star of my own career. So shortly after I took on the case, I have like looked at her email address so many times over the years, like a terrible stalker who I should be studying and just being like, do I have a reason to reach out to her to ask her her advice on stuff? And I never felt that I did. And when I took on this case, I was like, oh, oh, I wonder if Dr. Burgess would talk to me about this case. And so one night I had a couple glasses of cab and I jumped on my email and I fired off an email and I just said, I've just been assigned this case. And obviously your work has, you know, has really guided where I've landed with the ability to work on this kind of case, you know, whatever. And she answered me immediately. And she said, oh, let's get on a call. She said, I'm working on a decap study right now. This is perfect. You know, we started communicating and about about six months later, maybe it was a little bit later because it was in COVID, she was giving a keynote address and for an online conference and I attended. And in one of the breakout rooms, they had set up a number of breakout rooms with different people, but obviously the Dr. Burgess breakout room was like pretty much where everybody went. And as names were popping up, I see my little picture come up and Dr. Burgess says, oh, you guys, Sarah Kalen is here. She's amazing. And I kind of felt that I had basically like I have now lived my entire life. But we started talking in that breakout room and then a subsequent breakout room about putting together a cold case investigation consultation group. And so now we do that too. So Dr. Burgess and Dr. Michelle Patch from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Karan Burda from UMD and then Dr. Victor Petraika, who's also at Boston College with Dr. Burgess. We have put together an incredible, it feels like the league of very important forensic psych nurses and criminologists and we've been doing cold case consultation. We've spent a lot of time on the Bergeron case. So that group has actually been really instrumental in this case. Um, but we're taking cases now from all over the world. I'm just kind of amazed, you know, I get to call this woman my colleague now. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, she's so knowledgeable and sharp when she appears in that episode. And she's fun and she's nice and she makes a great G&T. They always say, don't meet your heroes. But I am here to say I have met my hero and she's better than I imagined. Can you tell us what? What she told you about the killer of Renee based on the way her body was found. I had a lot of the same impressions she did, but that's because I, you know, I studied at her feet essentially. So her very first impression was obviously the initial investigation was wildly off base with the idea of a drug deal. She felt immediately it was a sexual homicide. She also felt because the scene was left the way it was that there was a distinct possibility it was a serial. So she felt, you know, it was important as well that we kind of pursue that angle, see if there were actives in the area, you know, that we now know about, or 
are there other cases in the region that kind of look enough like this that we could be looking at at a serial that no one um, has yet, you know, identified or apprehended? And so we kind of pursued it from that angle. When we presented it to our little collaborative, we presented some of the other suspect theories that we had. One, of course, was the serial angle that we discussed with Sean Gillis, or perhaps a couple. We looked at a couple of others. Charlie Brandt was another one from Florida we looked at. But there were also some, you're going to meet some characters coming up who are very, very different theories of the case, but are extremely compelling in their own right for a number of reasons. And so we just kind of had to pick all of that apart and kind of see who was the most viable. You know, I always say that with, I think with good detective work, with a good homicide investigation, if you wanted to, you could pick a person and prove that almost anybody did something, right? At least strongly enough for an indictment and maybe even for a conviction. We see this all the time with these wrongful convictions. There was so much evidence in the face of it saying this person didn't do it. There's just enough that they can convince people, right? And probably in a lot of ways convince themselves. And I think that the responsible way to do an investigation is if you really think somebody's a good suspect, you have to work your ass off to eliminate them. And once you have done everything you can to eliminate somebody, if you cannot eliminate them, okay, now you can begin to decide whether or not you should build a case against this person. So that's what we had to do first was go through and eliminate as many of the suspects as we were looking at, you know, as, as we could. But how is this a sexual crime? I understand Renee was decapitated and you and Dr. Burgess spoke about how a victim doesn't even have to be raped, really, for it to be a sexual uh, murder. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the common misconceptions about sexual homicide is that there has to be an obvious sexual act at the scene. And I think that that thought process happens because most people are operating from a headspace, you know, what we would consider, quote unquote, normal sexual behavior, right? Even if there's some kink, even if there's some fetish, whatever, there is sort of a spectrum of what we consider kind of like normal sexual activity. And so if we don't see that at the scene, people tend to think nothing about this is sexual. And the most important thing to remember is that when we're looking at sexual homicide or serial homicide, we are looking at people for whom sexual gratification can come from places we don't even fathom, that we don't even imagine as being sexual. So to that person, there may have been tremendous sexual gratification simply in the torture, in any number of the elements of the crime. But one of the things to remember, unfortunately, in this case is that she was raped. She was raped with the blade of a knife. And so that is a sexual act, whether or not it resulted in in somebody um, you know, ejaculating the scene or whatever. It does That is an overtly sexual act. It is a sadistic and horrible act, but it is still a sexual act. I don't really want to talk too much about that particular act, but it does raise some questions that I think need to be asked is an act like that where somebody raped her with a knife. What does that say about them in regards to how they feel about themselves? Is it more about themselves or more about the actual hatred of women or this particular woman? Or is it just like, are they sexually impotent? and that's what drives it? Sexual homicide is like working with a snowflake. Each one is unique and different. And yes, of course, one of the things that we've examined in this is the person's perhaps inability to sexually assault and, you know, like to rape her. That is one possibility. Another possibility, you know, Dr. Burgess and I discuss this a lot, the complete desexualization of her because there were also cuts to her face and cuts to other part of her bodies. So, you know, kind of removing her sexuality or even in a way her gender 
gender, that is going to more likely be a reflection on that person or on that person's feelings towards her, right? So if it's a stranger, if it's a serial who has been following somebody for a while or just opportunistic serial, right? Maybe she agreed to take somebody on as a client that we weren't aware of. You know, this is who she encountered. But it also, there is something about it that those of us who have examined the case in real close detail have felt that there was a personal dynamic. As Dr. Burgess said, that doesn't necessarily mean that Renee knew the person, rather that they knew her. But it also could mean that this person knew her and her sexuality is is very offensive to them for some reason. So it may not even be that they are impotent, but that they refuse in a way that they see themselves as above having sex with her, but still kind of want to have that act, that aggression, that sexual violence towards her. Interesting. And I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but um, I understand that she was drained of her blood? She was. And cleaned or washed as well? Yeah. It appears the scene where she was recovered was not the scene where she was killed, and it was not the scene where these things were done to her body. It was very clear that whoever placed her body did so very quickly and left. Everything else had been done elsewhere. Her body in the crime scene photos is really quite clean. There's a little bit of dirt from where she was dragged and put there and she was exsanguinated. So almost all the fluids from her body had been removed, which would lead us to believe she was perhaps strung up and drained that way or left in a drain of some kind or something. It it really is awful. Yeah, so she was cleaned off before she was put there, which it presents a lot of challenges. You know, we can, in the right circumstances, even get fingerprints off of somebody and considering that she was dragged, we think by her ankles, like that would have been a, a possible place to identify prints or now DNA. It also makes recovery of DNA even from what was collected at the time, which was, you know, a rape kit and fingernail clippings. But it makes it difficult to work with that because if she was washed, they may not have been thinking about washing away touch DNA in 1993. They were probably thinking about washing away other things, but they did in fact wash away a lot of evidence. I know you mentioned the Black Dahlia case in the show. Were you able to learn anything from that case and apply it to Renee's? That's a great question. You know, I've looked at that case a lot more over the last year than I had at any previous time. And there are a lot of similarities. There are some differences too, obviously. I think we're not looking at too terribly different of a person. The circumstances may have been quite different, but that is also a case that a lot of the information that's out in the public, even a lot of the information that is presented as like supporting some of the theories on who did it is just patently false. It's like disprovable from looking at the crime scene photos. And so that's another one where it seems like there were a lot of assumptions in the first couple of days that perhaps unfortunately landed in a place where we may never know because of the damage that was done by making assumptions about the victim from the beginning. I want to circle back to the incredibly graphic conversation that we were just having, not just out of like morbid curiosity, but as an investigator, when you discover that a body has been drained of all of their bodily fluids, and that likely means that they were hung or there was a drain, what does that tell you about the mechanics of the person who was capable of doing this physically, mentally, and then just like environmentally? So mentally, this is somebody who's very comfortable with violence, right? Environmentally, it tells us, you know, we're looking for a very specific type of location where these acts could have taken place. You know, we would also suspect that it has to be relatively close by because it's a pretty enormous risk to drive very far with the decapitated corpse in your car. And, you know, her head as well, which was recovered the next day. 
day. So, you know, it's somebody who has access probably to some sort of cold storage, probably to some sort of a facility where they can hose things down on like kind of a large scale. This would be very messy in a bathtub. So it tells us it probably happened nearby and it probably happened in some sort of a facility that had, even on a very, very small scale, some sort of industrial kind of or professional kind of usage, at least part-time. You know, one of the things that's come up a lot is the possibility that this would be somebody who was familiar with hunting because essentially that is how we see wild game field dressed to exsanguinate. And that is certainly possible. We're talking about rural Alabama. Nobody down there doesn't know how to hunt and doesn't know how to field dress an animal. So I don't think, unfortunately, that particular thing shrunk our suspect pool very much. But it does tell us it's somebody who's quite comfortable with violence. And we would expect to see a lot of it, a fair amount of it in their life, we would also expect to see a fair amount of disregard for the either physical or emotional pain of others, because you have to be a pretty sadistic motherfucker to pull that off and then just go about your life. So then you looked at serial killers and people who were known to have been, uh, you know, killing around that time. Is that because Renee is obviously the victim of someone who has killed more than once? She's certainly the victim of somebody who is quite capable of killing more than once. Nobody starts and then stops at decapitation mutilation. That is not somebody's first rodeo. So even if they had not killed previously, they're engaged in some pretty rough stuff. They certainly were very unlikely to have completely turned it off. You look for a serial in that kind of case, or you look at the potential for a serial in that kind of case, because it is the kind of ritualistic behavior that tends to build up over years and take practice, even though it may not always look the same, if that makes sense. Right. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Okay, so can we talk about David a little bit from your show? Sure. What's the story with this guy and how did he get on the radar? He got on the radar the very first time I talked to Amanda Campos, Renee's daughter. I reached out the first day I was asked to look at the case and she said, by all means, yes. And then she said, please let me discuss it with my wife before we go any further because she has seen me kind of really suffer through this for a lot of years and she's very protective and I kind of want to let her know, like, I'm on board with this. This is okay. So after a couple of weeks and we had all received Renee's mom's blessing and Amanda's wife's blessings, we felt pretty good moving forward. And so Amanda and I had a really long phone call because I said, I just want to know as much as I can about her. Tell me everything. Tell me her favorite hobbies. Tell me what she was like as a kid, if you know, and tell me who her friends were. We were almost getting off the phone. And I said, is there really nobody in Mobile who you knew? And she said, you know, I really, I don't know a lot of people in Mobile. I have avoided that side of her life. It's very upsetting. And then she said, you know, there was this one guy and she tells me about David Young who started coming to visit them after her mom died. And she said, I remember my mom talking about him. I never met him before that. But I remember her talking about him as being my dad's best friend. And she said, you know, there was this one weird time. He came out to our house in New Orleans and he told my grandmother he wanted to take me to Mobile. And my grandparents were like, I think not. <laughs> you know, she, we're not sending a, you know, a 10 or 11 year old off with you. And she, they said, well, we can all go. She'll ride with us and you can show us what you want to show us. But he was not 
clear with them, at least according to the family, with where they were going. And when they arrived at the spot on the side of the, the service road, he got out of the car and said, I thought Amanda should see where her mother's body was found. And I got off that phone call and I texted my partner at the Mobile County Sheriff's Office and I said, I need everything we can find on this guy. That's how he came onto my radar. Okay. And in episode four, you went as far as getting his DNA. Yes, we did. This is a really fascinating real-time uh, investigation. That's the idea. That's what we wanted. So sly. I, I loved it. <laughs> I will say this. A lot of people, sometimes even including some of the detectives that I, you know, we've kind of all debated in there of, of which of our suspects are the most viable and stuff. And some people are very quick to say that David is not terribly bright, like that we really tricked him out of that Coke can. We didn't. I watched him look at the can and make that decision. He knew exactly what we were going to do. He knew why we wanted him to leave that can. And he wanted to not, but like he had stuff in his other hand and Matt is just walking away with this picture. And he knew, I, I can't, I got to get it. And he set the can down and grabbed, like lunged for the picture. How's your adrenaline during that? Honestly, fine. My adrenaline is much more bothered by things like somebody pulling out in front of me in traffic or, you know, watching The Last of Us. That I can barely even handle <laughs> that. But in actual either real life crises or real life moments like that, where it's very, very important that everything be done right. That is when I am at my calmest. My heart rate is probably at its lowest at that point. I function really well under pressure. It has served me well professionally. Just a curiosity here. You have the audio of you obtaining his DNA. Is there any chance that would help in court? Does that prove the chain of custody? It's also all video recorded on the, the sheriff's department system. So I'm recording on my phone through that whole thing. It's not like I've got like a podcast mic or anything. It's literally all just my Google Pixel. So in terms of chain of custody and everything, everything like that. That is all on video to see that everything was done correctly. We left it there. We went downstairs and told one of the crime scene guys that it was there. He came up and he collected it and it was a chain of custody just like we had picked it up off a crime scene. Super impressive. Thanks. Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> There was one time where I heard you give your theory on why there was a golden age of serial killers. And when I heard that, since then, I've been telling people that, whether it's like on air, you know, I'll credit you. I don't take credit for it. I have to credit Peter Vronsky was the one who I learned that from. I'm an academic. I would never take Peter Vronsky's work. And he may have gotten it from somebody else. But the first time I heard that whole thing proposed about the GIs and stuff like that was in reading The Sons of Cain by Peter Vronsky, which is a great book on serial predation. I think that it's so fascinating fascinating and I was so happy to hear you go into that I think Tim was saying like he knew that that's where you were going and like kind of hoping that's where you were going to go and you did and for anyone who hasn't heard the episode listen to the episode but I also want you to give us a little bit of a detail of what that is the golden age of serial killers and why that happened now there are a lot of theories and again everything is just theory the problem with psychology is it's you know it's a squishy science as some people say and so as we learn new things things evolve but as we understand it, you know, we look at the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and both, yes, in popular culture and in media presentation, we saw this like huge spike in people learning about the existence of serial killers. Like think of, you know, your Dahmers and your Bundys and Berkowitz and stuff, right? These are all happening really across three decades. And I kind of think of it as like a serial killer bubble where they always existed before and they continue to exist since. But this really, there were more of them, not just that we saw more of them, but there were more of them, I think probably statistically. And there are a large number of factors for that. But the combination of factors that took place in the 30s, 40s, and 50s is why we see when these men who were 
babies, children, and tweens in the 30s, 40s, and 50s as they become adult men when we see criminal psychology like reaching you know, a maturation point where criminal careers are really taking off. We see them now aging into that part of their life in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so that's part of why we see such a, a burst. And then the combination of factors themselves is attributable to a lot of things. And I think we have finally come to a place where we discuss deep national trauma that came out of World War One and how awful that was. You know, we talk about the lost generation. We talk about these veterans who very much felt that they had been sent off on kind of a lost cause war. We talk less about that with World War Two because it's like this, oh, the greatest generation and they did all this stuff. These were still human beings, many of whom were in their late teens and early 20s who sought terrible, terrible things and came home and really didn't have a system to handle that. Like, I would not say that our system right now is so great for veterans dealing with PTSD, but it is a world different than what it was for vets coming home in the 20s and then in the 40s and 50s. So when you see PTSD unacknowledged and untreated in a home life, we all know what that does to the home life and what that does to the people in that person's life. It can be wildly destructive. It can just be absenteeism. It can be everything in between. And so you have a generation of young men, some of whom are going to be predisposed, right, towards sociopathy or psychopathy, the same way some of us are predisposed to left-handedness or blue eyes. And when that kind of combines with some of the other big factors that were taking place in those same decades, this is why I think you get a little starburst of them in one window of time. Really fascinating. I could listen to that explanation a hundred times and still be fascinated by it. Thanks. Don't forget the True Detective magazines too. In my mind, and again, this is all theory, you know, the True Detective magazines that were so popular with teen and tween boys and even like 10, 11 year old boys in the 50s and 60s were very sadistic imagery. It was nearly always sadistic imagery of female victims. I remember reading one account and I can't remember where I read it because I would want to credit the author, but one account that if you look at the particular style of animation that so many of them used, you were actually looking directly into the woman's eye in a lot of it. So you saw this kind of intense fear and horror in these like moments right before she's killed. And of course, the stories are meant to be about like, oh, the hero cop comes in and saves her or catches the guy who did this. It's all painted as this is really a story of good versus evil. But what you had were half naked women on magazines, sometimes even naked women in magazines that 12 year olds could buy. And again, this does not mean that everybody who saw this developed, you know, sadism in their sexual behavior. But if you get the right person who is coming into puberty at that time or coming into their understanding of what they find sexually attractive and you start planning that in their brain, well, now that is part of their sexual preference, sadism and and violence towards women. I just have one last question, which is in your view, coming from the host producer of the podcast and also from an investigative perspective, what's the importance of having a podcast like this out there? Thank you actually a lot for asking that. The most important thing to me from this podcast is conversation. I want people to talk to each other and talk to themselves. I want people to look in the mirror and say, you know, when I see a newspaper article discuss the cop and the killer at length and then say all three victims were prostitutes and that's the extent of the discussion, I want people to recognize in themselves just that split second when they say, oh, 
that doesn't really apply to me. And even the people with the best of intentions, the most like wild, crazy ass liberals like me, right? We all do this where for just a moment we think, oh, that's an other, right? And then, you know, hopefully most of us correct ourselves and say that's not true. But until we recognize that that moment is there, we are complicit too. And so it's in recognizing that moment that we can begin advocacy from it. So my hope is that people will start talking, people will recognize that little beat in themselves and try to correct it, make a more conscious effort to correct it and to hold others to account for it too. This is such a far afield step two and three down the road. But I also want police agencies to hear something like this and say, maybe it's not so bad if we let an outsider in to examine a case where they maybe have some tools that we just don't have rather than this like circle the wagons, don't let it, you know, need to know basis and operating from a toolkit that maybe doesn't have all the right equipment. There's nothing wrong with not having all the right equipment. Don't be so quick to say like, well, if we can't fix it with this, we can't fix it. I just want people to start talking more about what's possible and the ways that we can demand better of ourselves, of our peers, of the media and of the police. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here today on Space. Can you give us any hint to what is coming up on the rest of your podcast? Why can't we talk about Amanda's mom? We're going to spend a little more time with David Young. We're also going to meet a gentleman that we haven't met until now. This is somebody who I've spent a lot of time in the investigation going, oh, this guy definitely did it. And then going back the other way and going, oh no, this guy didn't do it. I've gotten a lot of messages from friends, even other detectives who are like, oh, it's David Young. And I'm like, hang on, you haven't met everybody yet. So I'm excited for you guys to meet some of the other nefarious characters of Mobile County in the 1990s. 